I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? We got legal on this? I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. You can knock them down to their second string offensive line. You can rack up the better part of 300 rushing yards on them. You can watch them fumble the ball away several times, but you cannot prevent the Vikings playing in a one-score game, and that's exactly what happened on Thursday Night Football. We'll get into that as well as some injuries and some more things uh, throughout this show, but uh, myself and, and Brad Spielberger are here to talk you through it. How's it going, Brad? How did you, uh, how did you find that crazy game last night? Extremely wonky, but we did have a good performance by the end there. Probably the most points that Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreit have experienced, I think, on Thursday night. Uh, so, yeah, we'll get into it. Got fun, but definitely a, a crazy, bizarre Minnesota Vikings-type uh, start to the, to the outing. Al was loving life. Al was, like, you know, talking up other games that look trash on paper. He's like, ah, don't write it off yet. You know, it could come good. Al, Al's rejuvenated with a close game. Yeah, a close game that had, you know, team score in the 20s. That's that's he hasn't had that in a full calendar year. <laughs> Look, sometimes all you need is just a, just one injection of, you know, fun to get the juices flowing again and get yourself back into life at its fullest and Al was absolutely in the zone. Um so yeah, we'll talk through a crazy Thursday night football game. Um we're going to talk about potential bounce back teams in week two, both good and bad, you know, teams that looked really good in week one and, I, and may actually not be that great. And then later on the show, we'll bring back our injury expert, Vic Troja, to talk about some of the biggest NFL injury stories coming out of week one. And more importantly, looking ahead to week two, a couple of guys that are, are big names after week one, are they going to play at all in week two? And are they guys you can rely on for your fantasy team? So we'll talk about that at the end of the show. First, though, Brad. Fall is about back-to-school and a back-to-routine checklist. And the most important task on that list should be securing your family's financial future, starting with life insurance. Fabric, Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in just minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You can go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states, prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, Brad, what was your biggest takeaway from that game? Because anytime you're dealing with a Minnesota Vikings game, the the bottom line is always madness. Bottom line is always madness. I think my biggest takeaway from a forward-looking standpoint, and if you look at his PFF grade and his stats, they do finally show up well uh, because of a bomb to Devontae Smith. But 
Jalen Hurts struggled against the Blitz last night. And, and Sam Schwartzstein, uh, who is the analytics expert for Amazon Prime, uh, talked about it before the game even started. He was 24th in success rate last year. That is Hurts against the Blitz. And you saw that. He, he struggled against that for a lot of the night. He was holding on to the ball for five, eight seconds and, and not finding anything downfield. Obviously, no one is going to blitz at the rate that Brian Flores does. Maybe <laughs> Wink Martindale with the Giants will do it twice against Philadelphia. But I think there's a, a to a degree, a blueprint of what to do. Obviously, you need a better secondary than Minnesota's, or you're going to get the Devontae Smith walk-in touchdown and some other downfield throws. But it, it gave Hurts fits like a, a lot of the night. Yeah, so I find, I'm kind of conflicted coming out of that game, right? Because... You're left with the feeling that Brian Flores actually did a really good job with that defense, and yet in several ways it was catastrophic. Like they couldn't stop the run. They gave up multiple deep bombs, but they did hold Philadelphia to, like with to some real problems in the passing game. And outside of those bombs, did a really good job. And you know, you talk about the blitzing. They actually blitzed more than they didn't. You know, they, they were calling a blitz more than fifty percent of the time on defense. I wonder. Is that type of uh, scheme, does that just sort of get better press than if you were a little bit more conservative and you still got gashed for whatever it was, 430 net yards? Like, do you kind of give the guy style points for at least being aggressive and winning on some snaps? It's only when you take it in the totality that you're like, actually, this wasn't a good defensive performance at all. They gave up, you know, a ton of yards and quite a lot of points in the end. I think you do, because look, this is one of the least talented defenses in the NFL. They, they frankly got worse than last year, and they give up 30 points or more. I want to say the last seven games of the season last year, and then you trade Zadarius Smith, who had like 80 pressures. You lose Dalvin Tomlinson, who's also a great player, looked good. Both of those guys look good in Cleveland in week one. So for me, yes, because I think it did have an impact early. I mean, Hurts' throw to Devontae Smith with a hand in his face was awesome. He was able to overcome it on certain snaps, yeah. but if they sat back and saw zone like Ed Donatel last year the Eagles would have had 5,000 yards not 450 <laughs> so for me it, it does it does still matter and the rushing yards thing the Eagles uh, offensive line created 115 yards before contact last night yeah. would have been a top 10 mark in the NFL for all of last season uh, obviously is number one so far in 2023 that is kind of what they do. Uh, I mean, they're an exceptional offensive line. You know, Jeff Statlin there in Philadelphia is as good as it gets in the run game um, and coaching those guys. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, yeah, I mean, at least Flores tried. At least he tried to do something, and it did work at times. Yeah, and it worked specifically with um, Jalen Hurts a lot. Like, they – there's been conversations, you know, if you listen to some of the the tape people, the the, the X's and O's guys, um, Joe Banner, the former Philadelphia Eagles uh, executive, talked about this before. The teams that have been able to do a good job against this offense for Philadelphia are teams that have stacked the line of scrimmage with those kind of five- and six-man defensive front looks. And the Vikings did that a lot. A lot of the plays they dropped out of it in, like they didn't send all those five or six guys. They dropped them off the line of scrimmage, but they showed that look pre-snap, and it did a very good job of bottling up Jalen Hurts from a rushing point of view, um, you know, relative. Now, it didn't do anything to stop DeAndre Swift and Boston Scott and, like, the running backs. They couldn't stop the actual design run game, but they were able to kind of limit exactly how Philadelphia was running the ball. But I guess the overall question becomes, like, you know, is this type of scheme, like, was this a good performance from Brian Flores by, like, limiting the damage that was going to be done to a bad personnel group? Or 
is this a slightly suicidal type of game plan? Because, you know, at some point you're going to hang a Caleb Evans out one-on-one in man coverage, and that's like an automatic touchdown. Like, I'm kind of on the fence as to whether that's good or bad to be hyper-aggressive in these situations knowing you have crappy personnel because you might catch the good end of variance and, like, a bunch of good plays get stacked in your direction, that's all you need, versus... Like, maybe you should recognize that your personnel is garbage and actually try and protect them more than he was gonna, going to. I think you touched on it right there, is that he started with a lot of, a lot of you know, blitzing, and then there was a lot of drop eight, right? And just rush three and sit back in coverage. And there was, like, a sack after eight and a half seconds. Daniil Hunter had one of his sacks on Jalen Hurts. And, and the you know, maybe some sim pressures or, or having Ivan Pace, uh, you know, mugging the A-gap, uh, you know, because he is you know, already a great you know pass rusher as an inside linebacker. Like, doing those things, even if you don't bring them, because you brought them earlier in the game, I know we're talking about a team that gave up 34 points, but yeah. the Vikings also fumbled the ball four times, yeah. uh, gave the, you know, the Eagles offense some advantageous field position and looks. And again, like I said, I mean, the personnel is just not good. So, I don't know. For me, I know it sounds silly. I thought it was a good game plan and, and a good idea a good approach from Brian Flores. It's just like you said, sometimes you are going to hang a guy out to dry in a one-on-one with A.J. Brown or Devontae Smith, and no one's winning that, even the great corners in the NFL, much less guys that are, you know, learning the NFL game as of right now. And they did absolutely, you know, fool the Eagles and Jalen Hurts on a couple of occasions. Like, the interception was a great example of that, right? They, they looked, they showed a much more aggressive formation, and then they dropped everybody out. They were playing with that, um, three safety look a lot over the course of the game. That was one of those plays. They also, the guy um, stacked at the line of scrimmage dropped all the way back and ended up being the guy to pick it off. But any one of two different Viking safeties had a, had a beat on that pass. It was, I think Jalen Hurts was completely fooled. So, yeah, I'm, I, I think I, I lean in your direction that, you know, better to go down swinging than just with a million paper cuts, knowing that you're overmatched anyway. You might as well try and catch the good plays. The other part of this game, though, yeah, you're, the the fumbles was huge, and honestly, that cost Minnesota this game. They could and maybe should have won this if they just didn't keep pitching the ball back to the Eagles. It was amazing. Um, big punt return that ends up going should have been setting them up with a short field. Uh, the ball comes out on the tackle and ends up turning it back. Justin Jefferson fumbling the ball over the goal line, everybody's favorite rule. Uh, touchback instead of touchdown, like that's a monstrous swing. They could not stop putting the ball on the ground. And I felt for the offense because they were wildly overmatched on the offensive line. It got worse because Christian Darisol was never really ready to go. And then his backup, uh, Ole Udo, goes down. And now... David Questenberry's out there at left tackle, like third string left tackle in addition to either backups on the interior or backup level people on the interior. And yet Kirk Cousins is out here absolutely bawling. Pretty funny, like how often he has great games when they lose, and you're gonna hear the oh, Kirk Cousins in prime time. Kirk was pretty awesome last he night. Really like, let's be honest, like he had a very good game. Obviously, the touchback, I do think that throw was awful to Justin Jefferson. I'm not gonna blame Kirk for Justin Jefferson fumbling the ball and, and having a touchback, but he was so late on that throw, and it was so behind Jefferson that he should have had a walk-in touchdown. But to Kirk's credit, he actually said that in his post-game press conference. He blamed himself and and was harsh on himself for 
that throw. So, you know, he's aware of it as well. But, yeah, he was he was great in the second half. He was 7 of 11 for 145 yards on throws 10-plus yards downfield with two touchdowns and the K.J. Osborne big drop. Yeah, you mentioned, was yeah. it Brandon Powell, the, the punt returner? Yeah. He was at midfield. I mean, that was a great return yeah. until he fumbled. So you can blame a lot of people for last night's loss. I, I don't think Kirk is too high on that list. I mean – most of the time, sometimes box score numbers just don't tell the story at all. You know, sometimes they actually do get you in the ballpark. This one was just fascinating. When you, when you consider the offensive line that we just talked about, the fact that they had four turnovers, only one of which was, you know, a cousin's thing, and that was a strip sack that he couldn't really do anything about, um, and the fact that they had 28 rushing yards in the game, right? For Kirk Cousins to go 31 of 44 for 364 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions, which is a passer rating of 125.6, is ridiculous. Like, he has no business having that kind of game. It was an 83.1 PFF grade. When he was kept clean, it was 89.9. Like, that was a phenomenal performance from him in a situation that hadn't just should not have been a game that good by Kirk Cousins. Yeah, and you mentioned the the external pressure from Josh Sweat, who had eight pressures and was kind of you know in his backyard the entire time. We've talked a lot, you know, on our podcast about how Kirk really struggles against interior pressure in particular. Center Garrett Bradbury not playing this game. Uh, you know, Ed Ingram, the right guard, is one of the right now worst guards in the NFL. And then you have you know Jordan Davis and and uh, Jalen Carter. D- Jordan Davis looked awesome last night. I think he's finally stacking some good performances uh, as both a pass rusher and just a disruptive run defender he, he had alexander madison in the backfield i want to say twice in this game as well but yeah i mean it was the, the conditions for kirk were about as bad as they could get and he still was was quite productive yeah absolutely i, I thought he was really impressive um that the scheme that the vikings go for on defense is interesting with that three safety look essentially that kind of college like three three five type of formation um I certainly think there's a very straight parallel line between that and the Eagles racking up a million and two rushing yards. Like, that's not a formation that stops the run, and that's what happened. Now, you can argue that's actually a pretty – like, that's not a bad way of doing it generally, right, is to essentially invite the run. That game stayed close despite four turnovers, in large part because the Eagles were content to just do this step, 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 slowly, you know, rushing – five yards a clip, and pick it up that way. Like the first touchdown, I think the Eagles' first touchdown came at the end of a drive where they ran almost every single play, and the Vikings' defense just looked tired. Like that touchdown was coming. There was no way they were stopping them at any point. It was just a case of how many plays it was going to take. But in a way, that might actually be a good thing, right? Chew up the clock, let them take a while to put points on the board, and then if you can answer through the air, you're, you're not in a bad place. But what was also interesting to me is you look at their uh, young defenders, Quasi's draft picks now. Uh, they, they started with three safeties on the field. Josh Metellus very quickly got hurt and came off the field. Theo Jackson comes in. So they've now used their, their three safeties on the field. They've used four of them. And Lewisine, <clears throat> the first draft pick of the Quasi regime, is not one of those players. He is safety number five on this team. He's essentially a special teams player only. That's pretty bad. And then you've got Andrew Booth Jr., his second draft pick, can't even crack the lineup in one of the worst-looking cornerback rooms in the NFL. I mean, look, we, we're still very early on in the tenure of Quasi Adolfo Mensa at GM, but right now his first two draft picks are looking catastrophic. 
Yeah, and then I mentioned the guy who is playing the next pick at Ingram. It probably should not be playing, right. uh, frankly. So, yeah, look, there are a lot of awesome GMs. You go back, I say this on a million podcasts, you go back and look at their first draft class, and a lot of them are rough. Even your favorite GMs, guys that have been around for a decade now that are building winners, for whatever reason, their first class is just not particularly stellar. So we'll give them some more time. We'll see how things go. Obviously, Jordan Addison is awesome. Obviously, he traded draft picks for TJ Hawkinson, who had seven catches for 66 yards and two scores. There's been some good there, right. but it is tough when, I mean, the first draft class might ultimately produce like nobody. I mean, Brian Asamoah, I think, is solid, made some plays last night. It's great to have an undrafted free agent in Ivan Pace Jr., yeah. who we mentioned before. So there, there, there's some solid pieces there. But, yeah, the two two secondary players were probably supposed to be, like, starter-level impact guys um, and, and really, really weren't. So it makes things tougher, you know, uh, for this defense and for Brian Flores. Yeah, and, I mean, it's not a good sign for Brian Asamoah um, straight away that, like, Ivan Pace Jr. comes in and essentially steals that job from him. Like, theoretically, that was supposed to be Asamoah's role heading into this this year. And instead, Ivan Pace comes from nowhere and takes that job. Now, this is one of those situations where, like, a mistake ends up getting saved by, you can call it blind luck or you can call it, you know, a secondary pick that ends up looking smart. Like, Ivan Pace Jr. being an undrafted free agent, he was the second best graded player on the defense yesterday. He looked absolutely fantastic. He's one of those players, very different um, style, very different body type, but he reminds me quite a lot of... um, Dante Hightower, the way, you know, he's a blitzing specialist. Like, he's so good at just coming downhill, throwing his body into the line of scrimmage and wreaking havoc that way. They sent him on 10 blitzes out of 61 total snaps, and he had a pass rushing grade of 90.4. Like, he makes an impact on those plays, which will make up for some other deficiencies. Now, he graded pretty well across the board, but, like, that's that's. That might be their best move so far in terms of personnel in two years, and it was an undrafted like pickup. Yeah, no, you could probably make that argument. Um, and, and it's interesting, you know, one last piece going back to what you said about you know them kind of being a run funnel. I'm not sure if it was intentional yeah. with Brian Flores being a run funnel. I mean, I think last year that was probably an intentional move with Ed Donatel, who comes from the Vic Fangio tree. You saw Week One, Miami, Los Angeles. Uh, the Eagles last night <clears throat> just beat the Chargers uh, in terms of success rate rushing the football. The Chargers' performance was historic last week, and the Eagles this week was like top five all time. Uh, I think our our old buddy Austin Gale tweeted that out uh, in terms of success rate running the ball, 72% uh, in a game. It, you know, but you can, like, you can stay in games. And obviously, Miami just threw on top of it and was able to win. And maybe they wanted Justin Herbert handing the ball off and we're okay with five, six, seven yards instead of 20, 25, 30 yards. Um, I don't know if it was as intentional last night with Minnesota, yeah. especially, you know, late in the game when they needed to get a stop and simply could not. But, yeah, you'll take that over the explosives with A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. And then the last thing to come out of that game that we have to mention on this podcast as well, in particular because you're a Bears fan, Justin Jefferson, at the age of 24 years old, now has more receiving yards in his career than any Bears receiver in their history, all 100 plus years of that history. Um, that's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar tweet, just just to you know, uh, you know, gripe here. I had a very similar tweet in the first half. It didn't go mega super viral like yours. But anyway, the wording, bro. Uh, you're the talk of the town today. And the best part about the Bears list, uh, it's not a wide receiver that Justin Jefferson passed. It's a flanker yeah. uh, that he passed. Uh, there's also two running backs and a tight end on that list that all played in the 60s and 80s. So, anyway, go Bears. Baby. There's actually there's a bunch of weird stats like that. Like, the the Vikings have – he was he, 
he tied or he just exceeded Randy Moss in terms of the, the yeah just passed him the most yardage from any receiver uh, under the age of 25 in their NFL career. There was some other like crazy number like after 52 games is what the list looks like. The Vikings basically have number one and number two on that all-time list of immediate wide receiver production and immediate young wide receiver production, which is wild. Like and in particular. You know, these things always make more of an impact when you contrast them with something. And the Bears, unfortunately, are like the most contrasting team in this regard. But Chicago, with their 100-plus years, have essentially never really had a good wide receiver, certainly not one that they drafted that lasted more than a couple of years. And then the Vikings have had the two most productive wide receivers in NFL history in terms of immediate. It's just wild that they went... In the last 20 years, they've had Randy Moss and Justin Jefferson setting this kind of record pace. It's such a weird division because then you also have maybe the two best players arguably at their position ever uh, or certainly in the conversation uh, of the Detroit Lions and Calvin Johnson and Barry Sanders that both retired before the age of 30 and then Green Bay just wins the division every year. So, yeah, that's that's how the (laughs) NFC North goes. It's a whole lot of fun. Uh, The Bears have never had a 4,000-yard passer in franchise history, so that Mm. would probably help uh, the receivers put up yards. But let's please, please move on to another topic. Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) somebody asked me how is that even possible, and I Googled all-time leading. Bears passer and Jay Cutler is the name that comes up. We're like, well, yep. this is part of it. <laughs> it doesn't excuse all of it, but at least goes some way towards explaining that. All right, let's get on to our next topic, which is who's going to bounce back in the opposite direction in week two after whatever happened week one. So this can be, you know, a team that lost, a team that disappointed week one, the Pittsburgh Steelers say. Uh, are they going to bounce back and, and get a W in week two? Or it can be the other way. Any team that was particularly impressive week one that is, in fact, potential fool's gold are going to bounce back in the other direction. So who's uh, top of your list? Uh, So my number one team to bounce back and play better uh, in week two, and and yes, this is a chalky pick. This is an obvious pick, but I'm not just saying it because of vibes and and belief in in your Cincinnati Bengals, uh, your hometown team. I think the Baltimore Ravens defense is going to be problematic. We obviously did not see that at all against the Houston Texans, but um, they did have a ton of pressures week one. But then if you break down their pressures by – before or after three seconds. They actually did not have that great of a pass rushing performance. Uh, and the Houston Texans were starting a sixth-round rookie at center, uh, a left guard who they traded for two weeks prior, and a right tackle who they signed two weeks prior. Um, and and the, the Ravens were solid. But again, you know, Odafe Owe looked like the guy he's supposed to look like. Justin Matabike had a good game. But they weren't dominant by any performance. I was watching the first half tape this morning, you know, before the game kind of got out of hand, and C.J. Stroud was dropping back pretty much every snap and they were they were winning at, at a probably below average rate i would say um in under three seconds or even three and a half seconds so i think cincinnati you then add in probably no marlon humphrey still no marcus williams presumably with his pectoral injury in week one i think cincinnati we've seen the ravens defense without lamar jackson hold the Bengals last two times they played to nothing i think that flips and i think cincinnati puts up a lot of points <clears throat> yeah, the Bengal or the the Ravens came out of that week one game incredibly banged up. Like that was a a very costly game for them um, in terms of the injury tally. So I'm kind of with you there. I, uh, I I have a similar, very chalky, obvious pick: the Buffalo Bills. Josh Allen is not going to have that kind of meltdown every week, and probably not in consecutive weeks. Like it's massively concerning. It's incredibly worrying because what it showed is he's not in control of that game. Like, he cannot determine whether he's going to have that game. And more to the point, can't stop himself from having it when he knows it's happening. But 
I don't think that increases the frequency that it's going to show up with every week, right? Like, that was an absolute walking nightmare from Josh Allen in that game in multiple different ways, all of which were concerning, right? Whether it's the turnover-worthy plays, he led the NFL in, in pressures charged to the quarterback, so he caused the most pressure of any quarterback in the NFL. Um, so you add that to the turnover-worthy plays, to the launching himself into like three defenders for no good reason. Like those are three separate ways he had an absolute nightmare. But it's not going to happen every week, and he's too good at the other stuff, right? The, the big-time throws. When Trevor was on a Monday, and we talked a lot about this, you know, we kind of contrasted him and compared him to Jameis Winston. And number one, even the turnover-worthy plays are lower than Jameis Winston, right? Like even, even this level of Josh Allen is not Jameis Winston level bad. And the big-time throws are dramatically higher for Josh Allen. Like he does offset this way more than Jameis ever did, even though, you know, Jameis threw for 5,000 yards and those kinds of things. Like Allen makes a ton of amazing plays, and that's why you're able to live with some of the bad. Doesn't mean you don't want him to rein it in. The overall point being, I, that's just not happening two weeks in a row. Yeah, I, I agree. They're also going from a top five defense in the Jets to, I don't know, bottom 10 defense right. in, in the Raiders. So that, that should make a meaningful difference. Uh, I like that one. So my first choice for the other direction, and I'm saying this with respect now, I have respect for Sean McVay. I have respect for Matthew Stafford. I'm not going to dog them. I don't think they're going to be a top three pick team anymore. Um but the, the San Francisco 49ers and the Seattle Seahawks pass rush units are night and day. They are completely different units. I think San Francisco is going to be living in Matthew Stafford's lap, um, and, and he's not going to have the time that he did. You know, he was 10 of 18 on throws, 10-plus yards downfield, was hitting everyone, Puka Nakua, Tutu Atwell. Name a player they, they were balling out in week one. Seattle did nothing as a pass rush unit. We know it's not going to be the case. And then the big thing for me on the flip side is – T.J. Watt had three stacks in week one. The Niners quietly have issues at right tackle, yeah. um, at left guard, maybe arguably even right guard as well. Um, but, you know, I, I just the Rams had a 30 pass rush grade from their edge rushers in week one. It was the lowest by like 15 points, including the Chicago Bears and some other teams that don't have edge rushers. Outside of Aaron Donald, like they do, they have nobody. So I think, you know, they'll, they'll have more time. Purdy won't have as many turnover-worthy plays, won't be under pressure as much as he was. Uh, and then Matthew Stafford is going to be getting just mauled by Nick Bosa and co. Uh, I think we see a result we more expect uh, from those two teams in week two. Um, I have a couple more bounce-back candidates in terms of bad to good, uh, and then we'll see if there's any more the other way. Uh, the New York Giants right? <laughs> you get absolutely stomped by the, <laughs> by the Cowboys in week one. If ever there was a get-right spot for them, it's Arizona in week two, right? The Arizona Cardinals will not caused the kind of pass-rushing havoc that the Dallas Cowboys were able to. Dallas got pressure 60-something percent of the time, 65% of the time on Daniel Jones. 45% of the time is, like, catastrophic from an offensive point of view. 65 is a joke. Like, you cannot even think about functioning as an offense if you're under pressure 65% of the time. Cousins last night in his backup offensive line nightmare was, like, 38% of the time, which is not low, right? So... That's not going to happen unless the Barbarian truly has turned into the second coming of LT for the Cardinals. Daniel Jones is going to have some time to work. They're going to be able to function on offense. Their defense is going to cause some problems for Josh Dobbs and the Cardinals. And Dallas, or the Giants rather, may end up coming out of week two with a 500 record.
Um, assume the barbarian is our guy Dennis Gardeck. I would have to assume, Dennis correct? The yeah. barbarian. Okay. I would hope Gardeck. so. I would hope so. Uh, yeah, an underrated pass rusher for the last couple of years. So uh, I love that one. I agree. I, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting without Andrew Thomas. It looks like he's not going to play in this game. Yeah. Obviously, one of the best left tackles in football last year, but. I think Brian Dable, we've seen him scheme around issues plenty. Uh, Darren Waller said he's going to be fine. I know he's dealing with a nerve issue in his hamstring, uh, but I think he'll be okay. I guess I'll go back to back to the bad to good. Not that they were all bad, but I, I think the Kansas City Chiefs, and I know we're going to hear yeah. more about them later on, but uh, look, they, they're not going to drop as many passes as they, as they did in week one. I think it was four or five we charted officially. Obviously, one of those being a pick six touchdown that effectively decided the football game. Um, this Jaguars defense is still so, so young. Uh, we talked a lot last year uh, in the, going into this playoff game with Kansas City versus Jacksonville how bad they are covering the tight end. And then Travis Kelsey, I think, had 14 catches in that game. So if we do get Travis Kelsey, I think he's going to pick on Devin Lloyd and Foye Aluakun a little bit. Um, but regardless, this unit's going to play better. The offensive line is going to play better. Josh Allen and Trayvon Walker are a pretty you know, terrifying duo at this point. But uh, I think Kansas City bounces back and scores 30-plus points in this game. Yeah, Kansas City was where I was going next as well. Like, they arguably should have won that game anyway and only didn't because of like literally one of the worst wide receiver performances collectively of all time like that was that's what it took for Patrick Mahomes to not be able to single-handedly drag that team over the line Travis Kelsey may or may not play in this this game we'll we'll get to that a little bit later with Vic Chris Jones should be back so that's one thing that's coming back in their favor and then the other thing is that's not going to happen to again the Josh Allen effect right that isn't going to happen two weeks in a row to get the worst wide receiver performance in history in one game so if those two things work in their favor they're probably still able to to handle the team like the Jags who are probably at a similar kind of level to Detroit Um, and then the last one I have in terms of good to not good and this is 98.5% just to annoy Tyler in the booth. But the Browns, I'm not ready to buy into it yet. And the Steelers, I'm not ready to write them off yet either. So I am clinging to my priors for at least one more week until the Browns can show me they're capable of going out there and beating Pittsburgh the way they beat Cincinnati. And if that happens, I may have to eat some crow and adjust my priors. But until then, I'm clinging to them. It's week one. Week one has weird things happen, so I'm not buying it yet. I don't know if you can see the ticker live, but uh, <laughs> Tyler has made his his feelings acknowledged uh, <laughs> on the broadcast. So, uh, yep, Sava, I hear you. I mean, hey, if they are 2-0 with two divisional wins, that's about as good as they can get uh, out of the gates there. One more team I think bounces back. I could go two here, actually, but I, I will go, and this is not because I'm a fan. I think if you follow me enough, you know that I – the fact I'm a Bears fan is probably a net negative on my takes on them because they just bother me, but – I don't think they're going to play as poorly as they did in week one against Tampa Bay this week. Uh, they went from, they were minus, or they were plus one and a half all the way out to a field goal at a certain point. They've now been bought back off the key number to two and a half. But again, I simply don't think you could have a worse uh, coaching plan from either side of the football in this game. We talked about it a little bit, but I think you're going to see them bounce back. And the Buccaneers. I'm not going to say it was a fraudulent win over Minnesota, but they averaged less than four yards per play. They had, you know, the turnover luck. The Vikings had three turnovers in that game and then four last night. So they're setting records for turnovers already. Um, I, I just think a lot went Buccaneers way that wasn't really, you know, indicative of a sound process. It's going to carry over. I think the Chicago Bears are going to bounce back in this game. Maybe won't have Carlton Davis, which will be very big for DJ Moore. And I think, you know, they'll cover the field goal at least is my estimation. 
I'm not sure I'm comfortable with a world where Tyler has the autonomy to just start putting whatever he wants on the screen. Um, anyway, that's going to do it for our show uh, today. At least this portion, we're going to cut to a little interview with Vic Troja and talk some injuries. Brad, it's been a pleasure, good sir. I will see you next week, and Steve and I will be back on Monday. Sounds great. Tyler's right. <laughs> All right, a pleasure to be joined by our guy, our injury expert, Vic Troja. Thanks so much for coming back. We're going to uh, do a little weekly segment where we look ahead at some of the, the most important injuries from the week or things to, to talk about. Um, you, were, you came on you know, in the preseason, and we talked all kinds of NFL injuries, so I think this is going to be a, a fun, fun little segment every week. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one I think we've got to hit, obviously is Aaron Rodgers. Mm -hmm. You texted me almost immediately when that injury happened yeah. and you were like, I think that's his Achilles. And I think you did it before. We hadn't even seen a replay yet, had we? No. Yeah. No, just pretty much instantaneously. Now, I guess the first and most obvious question is, is that his career? I mean, he's going to be 40 in December. Achilles is a pretty significant injury for anybody. I mean, Dan Marino has been telling this story about how he was never the same guy after coming back from his. Okay, that was in the 1990s as opposed to now. But is that the end, or are we actually going to see more Aaron Rodgers? I mean, that's a great question. Um, the first good for Aaron Rodgers is that we don't really have any data out there for somebody nearing Social Security who's tearing <laughs> their Achilles tendons. So he's, uh, he's kind of an outlier in that aspect in which we really don't know what recovery is in your late 30s as a quarterback with an Achilles rupture. Um, I mean, I'm not seeing him come back like Cam Akers' timeline. He's probably going right. to be back next year um, if he does come back. Uh, the interesting thing with this is so he's had a history of calf strains, um, both his left and right. I mean, we have 2014, 2016, then earlier this offseason, he had two calf issues, one on the left, one on the right. Um, so that could possibly have played a role into like how this actually occurred. But the bright side of all of this is that he tore his left Achilles. He's a right-handed quarterback. So when quarterbacks use their loading leg, their back leg, their plant leg, they drive off of that, okay? So he's driving off of his right, which he did not tear that Achilles. So his power shouldn't be too affected um, because you get about a 10 to 30% decline in calf strength after an Achilles rupture and surgery. But if that's his front left leg and he's not a really scrambling quarterback, I don't see it playing that big of a factor as at least in his throwing power. The big question is, is he going to lose mobility? Is he going to lose that um, agility factor within the pocket? And that's going to be the question mark. I don't see um, I, if, if the surgery goes well and he gets that what we call the sural nerve, the nerve that kind of gives him that feeling and contraction in the calf. If he gets that back, uh, I don't see it being an issue come week one if he decides he wants to play. Um, you mentioned he's had this history of calf injuries. Is that make that more likely now that he's done his Achilles? Is this a, an even bigger risk for him? Yeah. I mean, uh, I would say just in general, lower extremity injuries lead to higher risk of other lower extremity injuries. So in general, yeah, he's definitely at a bigger risk. And it's kind of weird how he has had four calf injuries throughout his career. Actually, I think, it was, I think there was one even really, really early in like 2006 or something. Uh, he's had some pretty significant calf issues and lower extremity issues. So I'm, I, I do wonder if that's going to play more of a factor when he comes back. Um, after it happened, obviously, 
a ton of players, the, the whole surface of the field stuff came up again, right? And MetLife um, being particularly notorious for injuries. Now they, they redid the surface, right, over the the off season to something that was supposed to be even less prone to, to cause injuries. Robert Sala came out and quickly was like, nothing to do with the surface. So if it was a non-contact injury, maybe we would be worried, but, you know, that was under load or whatever, a guy hanging off him, right? So is that true? Like, is this a thing that was just freak injury just happened to be on MetLife or did the surface potentially contribute to this? I think it was a freak, um, just bad timing, bad foot placement. Um, I mean, from the reports I read, they said that his foot got caught in the turf and then he got the load landed on his calf. But it was more this that he planted and then yeah. you saw his foot just stay as he was getting loaded in. And then that's how I knew right away that it was Achilles and I texted you is because you saw it load and then give. Right. And it, so that was just a fluke issue. It could have happened there. It could have happened at a different stadium. I think it was probably going to happen no matter what. He just had an extra 250 pounds loaded through his, <laughs> through the one extremity, right? right like that's exactly. basically what happened. Yeah. Um, at Roger's age, so I, I find <laughs> sounds ridiculous. I find kind of aging from athletes kind of fascinating, right? Because it doesn't happen the same for everybody. Right. Some guys fall off a physical cliff and they can't, they're not the same guys anymore in terms of what they can do. Like Peyton Manning, right? Hit the end of his career and couldn't throw the ball anymore. Right. Like it just, just wasn't there. Um, conversely, you get guys like Brett Favre, who I think now could still roll out there and be like a top 10 NFL arm. That yeah. dude never, never lost velocity. But where he started to, where it manifested for him is his body wouldn't heal as fast anymore. Right. So an injury that used to keep him just on the injury report and he'd roll out there taped up and whatever, now he couldn't do that. He was too beat up. So the healing process seems to slow down. Like, is that the worry for a guy like Rogers at his age that it's, it's just gonna, like you could come back because I mean, physically Rogers seems as good as he's ever been, but it's gonna take longer than it would have done if you'd done this when you were 25. Right. Well. They actually put a number on 23-24 as far as NFL players on that age where your recovery process is probably going to be a little bit better. Like They draw that line right there. So, yeah, I mean, he's on the tail end of 30. So right. what I think is going to happen is he's going to take longer to recover. Um, his tissues are going to take longer to adapt. But kind of the silver lining in all of this is it happened four plays into week one. Yeah. You as know. soon as it can possibly happen. So basically. he has an entire year and off season to do that recovery. Whereas, like they're not trying to get him back if this happened in week eight or nine. One quick thing I wanted to mention, actually, and a lot of these are not specific to football, but there have been a spate recently of wildly quick recovery times for significant knee injuries, mm -hmm. or and particularly ACLs. Mm -hmm. um, I brought this up to Steve, but uh, the Rugby World Cup is going on right now, and the South African captain played a game 119 days after tearing his ACL. Yeah. It's another guy that did his six months ago or something, but we seem to have an incredible rate recently of a bunch of these injuries. Obviously, Cam Akers, you talked about before, with his Achilles, I mean, that timetable was an order of magnitude different from what it's supposed to be. Right. What the hell is happening with people yeah. now? I mean, you know, I heard you say that to him, and it's, it's crazy that they're happening this fast. Um, one of it is that there is different surgical approaches. So uh, Achilles tendon rupture now has a different surgical approach where they don't make that, like, straight line cut that right. you see. Um, they actually do, like, sutures from the top and just go from the in and out um, part of the ankle. And then the ACL is 
interesting like I look at Brees Hall as a great example Brees Hall had a clean ACL tear and they said he had meniscus damage but nowhere did I find that he had a meniscus repair meaning right. that it just healed with his ACL if you got a clean ACL they're starting to see that people can just load way faster and get back way faster it's the, the you know more of the complex ones that are, are harder to come back to um, so they actually pushing the rehab harder than they used to they've sort of realized that actually we don't need to ease it in this long we can get them doing things a lot quicker and a lot harder yep as long as they seem that the, the tissue seems that it's it's strong and capable to, to withstand some loads they're just going to keep on progressing so rather than a timetable of like person had an acl tear or you have to do this at this many right. weeks this at this many weeks it's just progressing them and if they're tolerating it and they feel like they can handle the load yeah they'll go it's just that when you get into the other ligament damage that are associated with it when you have to be more cautious all right so the next guy we need to talk about this is a big one for week two travis kelsey mm -hmm. um yep. we saw what happened to the chief's offense without travis kelsey in it uh he hyperextended his knee and then it was reported that there was a bone bruise in involved and he was supposed to be touch and go for week one you know we didn't know if he was going to go Thursday night and now we're week two and we might still be touch and go so what's the deal with Travis Kelsey and is he actually likely to play this week yeah I mean I was getting kind of different reports from this I, I think Jay Glazer was the one that came out and basically said that they drew out some fluid had some blood in it I, I dove into that a little bit um so they drew, they said, 45 cc's of, of fluid out of his knee, which looked like blood. Um, one, 45 cc's, if you, like, go and you get any fluid drawn and you see a syringe, like, that's a pretty significant amount. Right. And this, the worrisome part about that is if it's, if it's blood versus, like, a red tint viscous fluid. If it's blood, there was probably actually some significant bone bruising within that knee. Um, if they were worried about that tibial plateau fracture which is like when your knee extends and kind of compresses on itself um that's what they were checking for luckily that didn't happen but if he's still having some swelling and some damage in there i don't see it likely that he's going to make it back this week normally with something like this a bone bruise takes like three weeks to heal and what this is going to be two and a half he's at right now yeah so not even yeah right. yeah so i mean he if he plays um, it's just because he's been doing great with his recovery. Now, he did practice limited um, yesterday. They said, I mean, the whole big thing was he was doing some warm-ups and jogging, and then they, there was a video of him, like, jumping on a teammate. Well, that's not the, the stresses that, right. like, a game is going to put on his knee. So I still think he's, I'm leaning towards questionable with him even to come back because that, that could be bad. I mean, if that, those reports are right, like, I could see him having another week. A bone bruise is one of those injuries that sounds extremely minor and nothing to worry about what are we talking about when we say bone bruise yeah so it's um it actually is different on the mechanism so like kelsey's bone bruise was his knee extended and it was like bone on bone compression right when that happens there's no other place for the force to go other than in that bone and it can be a little bit more damaging but then like i would compare it to like a richardson right anthony richardson had a leg injury when he was running all over the field last week and he had what they reported as a bone bruise but that was from like a contact so right. that was like from like almost like you think like a leg whip and so if if that happens it's a little bit more superficial healing time is 
is a lot faster and it's going to eventually just feel like a bone bruise on a skin level and he's going to come back and I'm not worried about that whereas like when it's internal like in a joint in a bone bruise there's a lot more depth to it there's a lot more pooling of fluid and inflammation there and that's where you kind of have a little bit of unpredictability on how long he's going to be out. So is that the issue in terms of getting him back on the field because the bone bruise itself is like you're not are you at any further risk of injuring it if you're playing with a bone bruise if it wasn't for the swelling and the extra stuff going on surrounding it right and crossing your fingers that he doesn't like hyperextend his knee again right right like if if you press on a bruise it's going to hurt so, yeah like so, if you do that in the bone it's going to hurt too so just hoping that like you know he doesn't have any forces that go through that that's why like the test for Kelsey is going to be, can he jump? Can he load that? Can he push weight onto that bone bruise and be able to function fine? But is there an extent to which you, it's just a pain issue, right? Yeah. Like that, yeah. it, it hurts, but <laughs> the NFL has ways of dealing with that. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and if he can get through the pain, then, um, yeah, they'll just drain his knee again and stuff. But um, you don't want to risk it too much for him in this situation. It's only week two. so Right. So yeah. overall, we are assuming Travis Kelsey is probably not going to play, even though I, I assume they're going to claim that this is day-to-day -day right up until he's actually playing. Yep, that's what I was um, The last guy I want to bring up is Puka Nakua, the mm -hmm. Rams rookie receiver, yeah. just because everybody and their mother added this guy on the waiver wire after yeah. week one, and then he suddenly pops up in the injury report with an oblique injury. Now, I don't even know how you injure your oblique. I've, yeah. I've never done that. So what did he do most likely, and how big of a problem is it? Yeah, so that... Uh, Oblique injuries like are just soft tissue. It's like a, a core injury, right? Right. But if you're one, and you, and you know this too, if you have an injury that pops up in the middle of the week, and especially for a guy that's like not considered like a vet day, right, a younger player, um, you're a little bit more worried because it could have been something in practice. It could have been something that like really hampered him, and they're like, okay, we need to shut him down. Oblique injuries are, are very unique because they usually happen from some type of torsion, twist. Um, it's not like he injured his oblique because he got tackled. Right. Um, where then you're dealing with like what you would consider like a strained muscle. If it's significant, like where we, you know, see baseball pitchers and stuff like that get it, that's a, that's a long time. I mean, sometimes that's like three months. I don't see him being on that level. I think what it was is just more like a very mild strain, probably tweaked it, probably felt it, and they're like taking every single precaution because they don't have much depth there. So they're they're trying to get him back on the field. I don't I'm not too worried about it. I'm interested to see if he's a full go on practice before the game, but I'm not too worried about it unless they sit him out again. And then you're kind of worried that was there more damage than than just a little strain. So if you were I mean I I assume <clears throat> for both of us this is guesswork, but if you were guessing this was something that maybe happened in the game and then he aggravated it like the first practice or just it happened in the practice i see the weird thing is i didn't see anything happen in the game yeah. so I, I would almost say it happened in practice and it could easily be just like they were doing one-on-ones and he twisted his the body wrong way around. right yeah so it could have just i mean just appeared in practice i feel like we would have recognized it if it was something significant in the game yeah um hopefully just at this point there there's some soreness there and they're just holding off just so they don't re-aggravate it and then letting them play on sunday so all right vic that's the uh, the first we need to come up with a name of this you know the the injury uh, outlook the injury forecast the injury prognosis <laughs> whatever we're going to do yeah. but that's the first one of these for the nfl season vic's going to be back every week um fire us in questions for who you want us to talk about when it comes to injuries but thanks so much for coming in this has been awesome and uh, myself and steve will be back on monday All see right, you later thanks.